Hi friends, I'm Felicia. And I'm Diana. And we are the Base Body Babes. And I'm Sebastian, otherwise known as the Australian Strength Coach. Hello everyone and welcome back to Base, the podcast. Today we have two very special guests. This power couple are absolute authorities in the fitness industry, particularly in the field of nutrition. We have Dr. Lane Norton. He's one of the most well-respected nutrition experts in the world. He has a PhD in nutritional science. He's a pro natural bodybuilder, a USA powerlifting national champion. He's the founder of Bio Lane. And joining Lane is his prettier half, our fellow Aussie, his beautiful wife, Holly Baxter. Holly has a master's degree in dietetics. She is the author of The Reverse Dieting Guide, a WBFF pro fitness model, and combined, they are the founders of the newly launched app, The Carbon Diet Coach. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. We appreciate it. So um, I don't know if you guys remember, but I worked with you both on my own nutrition like quite a few years ago, which was insane. I learned yep. so much from you guys. I know like I probably was not the most compliant <laughs> <laughs> student, but I learned so much from you guys. And I know when we started talking about having a nutrition expert on our podcast, you guys were obviously, collectively, were obviously the first people that came to our mind. So there was no other way about this. We wanted you guys on here. But tell us uh-huh. a little bit about yourselves and your philosophy around nutrition. You know, it's interesting when I first got into like – researching nutrition and and going into my PhD, I kind of had this idea that doing research would lead me kind of down the one true path to find, you know, the, the diet that everybody should be on and how we should all do things. And what's interesting is after, and I'm sure Sebastian can relate to this as a strength coach. Um, after working with a lot of people, I just saw so many different things work that I became a pragmatist and just said, you know, the best diet is probably the one I can get people to stick to for the most part. I mean, if you get into athletic performance and those sorts of things, obviously, you know, if you've got endurance athlete, you know, putting them on a, a low carbohydrate diet is probably not the best thing you can do. You know, there, we know certain things, but I just got to the point where I saw so many different people get results doing so many different things. And the one consistent thing was that I saw was adherence that people just found something that they were able to, really stick to and there's tools to improve that you know habits um, you know we think higher protein and fiber seems to be better it's more satiating those sorts of things but yeah i just saw so many things work it was also a good lesson in taking trying to take my own bias out of the equation and say you know this this particular way of doing things worked for me i really like it that means nothing for everybody else and i think a lot of people miss that and they miss it, and, and I'm sure Sebastian can speak to this in strength training too. One of the biggest things you have to do is take your ego out of it in terms of what you like and find what works for the particular athlete. And I've found that too with nutrition is, okay, you know, I like flexible dieting. I like a little bit more carbohydrate compared to fat. I like, you know, X, Y, Z. There are some people who are going to vibe with that, but there's also a lot of people who aren't going to vibe with that and are going to need a completely different approach. And I think over the course of, you know, 15 years of coaching people, I really came full circle and stopped looking at things as this is the way you need to do it. Let's always do it this way. And I started looking as everything is tools in a tool belt. And why would I limit my tool belt? Now, I probably use my screwdriver a lot more than my jackhammer, but I've still got my jackhammer when I need it. 
And that's kind of how I approach things. You know, like, let me just give you one example and then I'll let my lovely wife take over. <laughs> but like fasted cardio, for example, when I was young and first getting into this, do my first bodybuilding show, I did fasted cardio. I got very lean. I said, see, everybody should do fasted cardio. It burns more fat, all this kind of stuff. Then I saw some scientific data that showed that it was no better. And we started thinking, well, maybe it's worse because um, you're not actually losing more fat based on the data. And uh, maybe it's more catabolic and maybe you get cortisol rise, all this kind of stuff. So then I was completely against fasted cardio, told everybody that they were stupid. They should <laughs> never do it. It's a terrible idea. And then coming full circle, I kind of looked at it and said, well, if somebody's an uh, emergency room doctor and who ha- and they got to get up at 5 a.m., it's the only time they can get their activity in. They get GI distress if they have anything before they go do exercise. Then maybe fasted cardio makes sense for them, you know? And it's kind of that full circle, okay, it's not a tool I pull out all the time, but in certain situations, it, it can be a useful tool. So... I'll tackle this from a slightly different perspective. So um, coming from a background of having disordered eating, so when I was really young, I was a top-level elite athlete competing at, you know, competing for Australia. And I think I kind of moved into the fitness community with, you know, there, there must be this one particular pathway that's going to get me to the top. And there was a lot of restrictions. There was a lot of good foods. There's a lot of bad foods. And there was kind of no middle ground. And just having gone through uh, a lot of, I guess, challenges, um, you know, as a young adult, but then coming to learn through, you know, the evidence-based community, reading the science, you know, getting an education that, hey, things don't have to be this black and white and that there are so many, like, you know, options to achieving a goal. Like part of my mantra, and I'm sure it's probably similar for you, is being able to now, like, explain to people, you know, using the evidence that, hey, there are, this way might work for you, but you don't have to be this rigid. You don't have to stick to this structured meal plan. You can have keto. You can do intermittent fasting. Hey, you love carbs? Great. Let's work out a way to make this work. So I think something that I'm really big on is working out, like, what is the individual's preference? Like, how does your life allow you to eat? Like, what is your lifestyle? And how can we make the foods that you enjoy part of that, but still get the results that you want? So... Yeah, I think, um, you know, having had a, a background of such rigidity, knowing that you can get on stage and still be eating whatever it is that you want, but, you know, within the moderations of flexible dieting, um, there's just so many choices. So I think that's um, something that's really exciting for us. Having I, I love that and I can relate, relate to it, obviously, as you said, Lane, from a, a strength standpoint. Uh, nutrition is a field that I've always kept away from uh, for a lot of reasons. There's a lot of conflicting ideas going around and, and that's, precisely why we want to have you guys on um, is to kind of, I don't want to say debunk because maybe some of these um, diet systems work really, really well, but perhaps you can simplify it, not just uh, for our audience, but also for me. I'm going to put my hand up straight away and say I've always kept away from <laughs> nutrition because I can just see, um, especially, you know, we're in social media, we're, we're all there, we see the debates going online and some of it's uh, completely absurd and, and something that I know that I've got a lot of confidence in and I'm going to blow uh, smoke uh, your way, Elaine. I, I kind of know that I can come to Lane Norton's page and just know there's the facts over there. The guy kind of says it how it is. Mm. Um, it's a no-bullshit approach, which I really love and that's exactly why that we wanted to come uh, and, and ask you guys these methods. Now, the first thing that I thought of um, was 
I, I was a little bit surprised when you said the, the amount of uh, flexibility or non-rigidity with your approach with nutrition. If someone likes keto, they can do it. If they like IF, they can do it. Um, I, I didn't think that you, you were um, flexible in that way. Um, what I heard about you guys from my, my little amount of knowledge on, on nutrition is that you guys are advocates for IIFYM, uh, flexible dieting. Is, is that, is that, am I accurate when I say that? So I, I think we have to make a distinction. So the reason that I became and we became associated with kind of IFYM flexible dieting. It's what we enjoy. Um, but we also understand that's not appropriate for everybody. So some people aren't going to be able to moderate that correctly. Um, you know, it's kind of like if you give people unlimited flexibility and they don't have the tools to manage that, they don't know what to do. They just go crazy. Right. But at the same time, you give somebody too much rigidity, the same thing can happen. So we look at it kind of on a case per case basis and my association with IFYM kind of came up just through mass effect of me debunking things for myself, like looking at the data and then talking to people about it. So people would, whenever somebody makes a claim, my immediate, immediate thought is, huh, I wonder if that's bullshit. Like I, I literally, whenever anybody makes any claim with regards to nutrition or science or anything, my first, my brain first immediately goes to, I wonder if they're full of shit. I, I dig into it a little bit. So for a long time, like for example, I remember when I got to grad school in 2004 and one of the things we knew back then was high fructose corn syrup makes you fat. It's going to make you fat. It's the worst thing in the world, et cetera, et cetera. And, over the next, and I remember actually having a conversation with a professor who did research on high fructose corn syrup and he's like, well, it doesn't seem to increase uh, fat mass independent of calorie uh, intake. And I was like, wait, what? No, no. And this is one of the guys who's doing the research, who's getting a lot of publicity. So then I started like, okay, now I go down the rabbit hole. And yes, high fructose corn syrup associated with weight gain, but it's hard to disconnect that from calorie intake because people who eat more high fructose corn syrup eat more calories. So when you look at the actual like match studies, it's extremely underwhelming. And I saw that so many times where I would go to like really tightly controlled studies that controlled calories and they just didn't see these single ingredients causing all these problems. Now, that being said, that people straw man what I say, and they'll say, ladies, just say you can go out as much high fructose corn syrup as you want. He's a shill for Pop-Tarts. You know, he's paid by big Coca-Cola and all that kind of stuff. And that's not what I'm saying. I think it's a really bad idea to eat a lot of refined, ultra-processed foods only because they're very calorie-dense and very easy to overeat on. But if somebody, and this is what would happen on the forums, because that's where I kind of cut my teeth was the bodybuilding.com forums and other bodybuilding forums before we add social media. So we say, well, can I have a, can I have a Pop-Tart? And I'll say, well, what do you, what's your total daily calorie intake like? Oh, it's, you know, 3,500. But, but yeah, like you're still getting everything else you need in, right? So is that really going to hurt you if you have that one thing? No, I mean, we can't say that based on the evidence. And so people kind of took that and be like, well, Lane's an IFYM guy. Well, kinda, but everything's, it's like, it's very much like a, a monetary budget, right? So we know how do you acquire wealth? You spend less than you make. And that doesn't matter if you make a million dollars a year or you make $50,000 a year, you have to spend less than you make in order to save money. I mean, nobody's gonna argue that. So the same thing comes with fat loss. Um, if you want to lose weight, you have to, uh, expend more than you take in. Now, there's a lot of ways you can go about doing that. But if, if, for example, we've got somebody who's, you know, low lean body mass, sedentary, 
doesn't, doesn't have much time for long workouts and they're, you know, they've got to eat 13, 1400 calories a day to lose weight. Um, they don't have a big budget, right? So is it, a, is it a good idea for them to have, you know, say, you know, uh, four Tim Tams when that's, you know, 400 calories right there. That's not very filling. That's kind of like somebody who has $50,000 a year income going out and buying a really fancy expensive sports car. It's not a good idea because it takes up so much of their budget. It makes getting in their essentials difficult. Mm -hmm. Same thing in the opposite direction. If you are a macro millionaire, right? If you are, and Sebastian, I'm sure you know, you know, guys like this who are, you know, big, a lot of lean body mass have trouble getting down all their calories and keeping their weight up. You know, can you imagine if you told somebody like Hapthor, hey, all you can eat is chicken, broccoli, and rice. Like the dude would, he would have so much gastrointestinal distress, <laughs> from so much fiber that he wouldn't be able to eat all that, right? So in that way, for some people, ultra-processed foods are actually a great tool because you can manage hunger if they have a really high calorie budget. So I've worked with quite a few bodybuilders and, um, you know, their calories are significantly higher than, you know, you or I girls. Like we're, you know, around the 2,000 calorie mark most likely. Mm -hmm. um, so these guys are eating in excess of four or 5,000 calories a day and quite a few of them, like using those old methods, um, you know, eating very, like, typically clean, you know, low calorie foods, um, some of them were actually getting to the point where they were starting to experience, you know, gastrointestinal discomfort and some strange symptoms like nausea or vomiting. And, you know, after like inspecting their nutritional intakes, like some of them were consuming like up in the, like the upper limits or beyond for some of the micronutrients. And you can end up consuming like a toxic amount of some of these, um, you know, smaller, you know, elements, trace elements and things, and they can have a negative consequence. So for someone like that, you absolutely need to be encouraging, you know, some more, you know, processed foods that are higher and more refined um, so that they don't feel sick. And even it's not processed foods, just like low satiating foods in, yeah. that, in that aspect. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, so that's why we always, like, it just depends. So I, I love what you just said, everything about what you just said. So um, basically I was kind of expecting you to go off on a, on a tangent and explain to us what IIFYM um, means, which is why we never really had this in one of the diet fads. I just thought it was going to go without saying. But, but now I would love to know a little bit about IIFYM before we go on to the rest of the uh, different types of diets out there. Can you just explain the types of guidelines we have? As you said, someone's on a really um, you know, low budget. They're not going to eat four Tim Tams because uh, they're not going to get all of the nutrient requirements. Uh, what, what are the guidelines that you must follow? Obviously, it's not just like you can eat whatever you want and get the body that you want. Uh, explain to us simply what, what are the guidelines that you must follow to successfully follow IIFYM? We're calling this segment Breaking Down Diets with BioLane. Well, uh, as we say in our book, you can eat whatever you want. You just can't, can't eat however much of whatever you want, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the, that's the constraints. I think a lot of people use the 80-20 rule, which I think is a relatively good rule, which is, you know, 80% from, you know, minimally processed whole single ingredient foods in terms of, you know, fruits, vegetables, uh, lean meats, protein sources, that kind of stuff. And then 20% of your budget, you know, go have fun with. But again, it, you know, I don't want people to hear that and get too rigid with that because again, you could have somebody out there who, you know, if they're eating 4,405 or 4,500 calories per day, they're trying to gain weight. Even 20% might be too low to have fun with because they're just going to have struggled to get in all those calories. Now, by the same token, uh, if somebody's down to 1,400 calories, 20% may not make sense. It may need to be almost 100% uh, minimally processed foods just because they'll have trouble keeping themselves satiated if they're, you know, having, 
you know, very much un- are uh, ultra processed calorie dense foods. Generally, as a rule of thumb, um, the lower your calorie intakes, and again, in, I will reference the book, but <laughs> sorry, we have um, a set range of calories that are kind of deemed to be optimal or normal. Then we have people that are consuming a lower amount of calories, or then we call them macronators, people that seem to be able to consume a lot higher calories and still maintain their body weight. So the lower you are on that spectrum, I guess the greater the percentage of calories that really need to be coming from whole foods um, just to ensure that you're meeting your body's you know daily micronutrient requirements and then I guess the higher up you kind of move through that um, that spectrum um, the more freedom you have to be able to start including more of those you know fun um, you know high calorie foods so flexible dieting was something I came across because what I tended to see and this was when I first started coaching back in 2005 um, I know it Seems crazy that we had online coaches before Instagram. <laughs> but, um, you know, when I first started coaching back in 2005, and I worked with primarily for the first five, six years of my career, 90% of my clientele was either people who competed in drug-free bodybuilding or people who had goals to compete in drug-free bodybuilding. Mm-hmm. After that, I started working with more gen pop and also worked with some IFBB people as well. Um but for the most part, what I observed was that was really interesting was that if the more restrictive they were during their diet, the it seemed like the more rapidly they would put weight back on after their contest prep was over. Mm-hmm. And what I found was the people who I allowed to have a little bit more flexibility or who had a more flexible mindset with, hey, I can have this thing. It's, it's not that bad. I'm just going to track it into my calories and protein, carbs, and fats and move on with my life. You know, they seem to do really well, whereas people who were like, I'm only sticking to these foods or this meal plan, what I would find is they would do great with that for, you know, a few days or a few weeks, and then they would have one day where they just went completely off the rails. It was almost like, you know, the idea is like getting, instead of, instead of like getting a flat tire, just changing the tire, they got a flat tire and then slashed all three of their other tires. They're like, Fuck it. And I think that's, that's actually, there's a clinical name for that. And it's called a disinhibition reflex. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it from a psychological perspective, if you put somebody in a room and you say you can go any or put somebody in a house and you say you can go anywhere in this house you want, but there's one door and you go, but for the love of God, don't go in there. If you go in there, all God help you. You know what I mean? So what immediately what do you want to do? You you want to go in there. (laughs) What's What's mine there? We have kind of this black and white thinking. So by me saying, you know, it's okay to have this, some people think I'm gonna make them eat that. And that's not true. What I always say is you know, a coach should never tell you exactly what you should be eating unless we're talking about some kind of clinical diagnosis. They should provide guidelines and structured flexibility so that inherently you know how to make good choices, but you also know how to handle it when you make not so good choices and you don't go off the rails. Mm-hmm. Thinking about it from a social perspective, you know, if you're going out for dinner, like these things happen in day-to-day life all the time. So, mm-hmm. You know, then if somebody doesn't have the experience or the tools or the knowledge to actually make an adjustment on their own, like you're not really enabling them to grow. It's like, what's the saying about, you know, you, you can um, t- you can give a person a fish and they'll eat for a day, you teach them to fish and they'll live for a year. So, yeah, you want to kind of educate people and give them the tools to be able to go off and, you know, not necessarily be reliant on you. And I think that's one of the things where we're so well, I can against. totally relate to that. When I came to you guys, I was gluten-free, dairy-free, refined sugar-free, and I was. I remember saying to you, Lane, 
Uh, you or even you, Holly, you gave me prescribed me this yeah, diet, and I was like, I don't want to eat any of that shit. Yeah, I was like, I do not want to eat any of that. That that is just not for me. Uh, but it took me so long to wrap my head around how you guys prescribed these diets. I just could not get it. I could not grasp it. I was like, What do you mean I can eat this? It's only like in the last couple of years that I've gone. You know what? This is epic. <laughs> it makes sense. And now. it makes sense. Yeah. So, kudos to you guys. What we talk about isn't really sexy. It's not like soundbite worthy. Yeah. You know, it just, it go, it's kind of like, I'll make another monetary uh, comparison, you know. So telling people, you know, save your money, you know, live within your means, mm-hmm. uh, invest wisely, you know, don't, don't, you know, do crazy things. That, that doesn't really grab headlines. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But what, what, what pops up on your feed all the time is, three steps to make six figures from home without even working, you know, that kind of stuff. That's the stuff that gets, um, that gets a lot of attention. Yeah. Yeah. And sadly, uh, you know, that's, so people start because that's what gets attention. That's what people start believing. And I think people, I think the one other thing we're missing is that people like to feel self-righteous about what they're doing mm-hmm. and they want to feel validated about what they're doing. Yeah. Right. So, for example, if you're on a very restrictive diet and you're suffering, right, because it just sucks, you want to feel like that suffering is worth it. So, you know, and I've done this when I was younger, like I would be out somewhere, you know, having my chicken that I brought with me or whatever, looking at other people eating out of a restaurant and I'd be like, oh, you fucking lazy, you know, whatever. <laughs> but that was, that was it. Tr- me trying to justify it in my mind as yeah, to what I was sure. doing. For, I think a lot of people... They find what they like and then they retroactively try to find the science to justify what they're doing. When in reality, saying, hey, I like this and it's my preference is a perfectly reasonable reason to do something that way. So, for example, I like uh, a little bit of calorie cycling. So, on days I have harder training sessions, I like to consume more calories. Mm -hmm. You won't find any scientific research that suggests that's how you should do things. Mm -hmm. In fact, most of the scientific research suggests that it doesn't doesn't really matter as long as your weekly calories are equated. But I like that. So, I do it. But when I tell other people about it, I will say, hey, there doesn't seem to be any research behind this, but I like it. Maybe you will. Maybe you won't. It's a tool in the tool belt. But I don't try to sell it as something it's not. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really hard for people, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a, sure. great, it's a great approach, definitely. Um, everything that you're talking about sounds very, um, obviously, macronutrient-oriented. Do you have any guidelines with micronutrients when it comes to IIFYM style of dieting? I'm sure some of you and maybe your listeners are familiar with the reverse diet, um, you know, concept of restoring your metabolism and being able to increase your calories. Um, so again, depending on where you fall on that trajectory of, you know, being someone that is, um, you know, their maintenance calories are very low versus somebody that, you know, has been able to work through a reverse diet or has just never dieted in their life. So they've, you know, naturally got this high endogenous metabolic rate. You know, the higher up you are on that spectrum, I think the um, more likely you're going to have a good micronutrient intake anyway, just um, via pure volume of food alone. Mm-hmm. You know, you're eating a lot of food, you're going to be getting a lot of micronutrients as it is. Um, so again, I think depending on where you are on that spectrum, you need to pay more attention to, you know, how many whole foods you're actually consuming, thinking about the, the breadth of, you know, the food groups, trying to make sure that you're including everything, as uh, all of them as possible or 
you know, rotating through from week to week to make sure that you've got all of the micronutrients. But yeah, like I said, I think the lower end of the spectrum, you need to pay more closely attention to the types of foods that you're consuming as you move through. Then you have a little bit more flexibility to kind of expand. There was actually a study that examined this, um, I think about a year or two ago, and they looked at people who followed kind of a flexible eating pattern versus people who were on a set meal plan. And what they actually found was really interesting. So, I mean, and the meal plan was kind of clean eating. They actually found that people who were on a flexible, I don't want to call it flexible dieting because it wasn't exactly flexible dieting, but people who had a flexible approach had better distribution of micronutrients uh, than people who were on a kind of clean eating plan. And and it, it makes sense from the perspective of if you're only eating certain foods, you're probably going to be really high in some micronutrients, but possibly frank deficient in others. And they actually, I think they found that, um, I think it was vitamin E. They were actually people who were on the kind of the clean eating plan were like low in vitamin E and a couple, they were like borderline and a couple of others. Mm-hmm. So that being said, you know, however you like to eat, if you're worried about it, you can take a multivitamin and then you don't have to worry about it anymore and you're, you're covered, you know, Does that most work? vitamins. Just, sorry, I don't want to, um, interrupt does multivitamins work i mean you've got some that are first off a lot of supplements end up being bunk out there if you actually test them so that's that's one qualifier that we have to worry about bioavailability is probably the most important right the natural form like alpha-tocopherol and that sort of thing. yeah so if you think about it like you're packing a bunch of um you know vitamins and minerals into a capsule form so when it comes to its actual availability how much of that is actually being absorbed across the intestinal and actually you know being dispersed throughout the body, um, it's not going to be as good as if you can eat something that's a whole food. There's a better chance for that to be actually digested and yeah, kind of transported. Yeah, policy too. So you've, you've kind of uh, touched on the next, I guess, diet style, which is clean eating. Um, and we want to go through a whole bunch of these, but perhaps you can give us a small definition, the way that you define the pros and the cons of clean eating. So I think my first problem with clean eating is there is no objective definition of what constitutes a clean food. That was that was one of the first things I really I really had a problem with. Well, again, when my brain goes, hmm, I wonder if that's bullshit. That's one of those things where it's like, okay, well, why, you know, what makes a food clean? Cause you know, vegetarians or vegans will tell you that meat isn't clean and then meat or, you know, carnivores would tell you that, you know, plants aren't clean because of uh, God, whatever reason they come up with. <laughs> um, so it kind of depends on the group, but the, the one, you know, typical, the, the clean eating I grew up with was kind of the bodybuilding style clean eating. Right. Yeah. Um, but even then there was debate about, well, you can't have dairy or can you have dairy or, can you have fruits, you know, cause they've got fructose, that sort of thing. Um, and I, I just find it very interesting. Like one of the foods I used to break down clean eating is I actually talk about like, like, um, air pop popcorn, right? So I'll, I'll ask somebody, do you think a sweet potato is clean? And everybody, like, Oh yeah. 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 Like I talk to these bodybuilders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. What do you think air pop popcorn is clean? Oh no, it's not clean. <laughs> so, okay. Well, how does that work? Because, Explain your logic to me because a sweet potato is uh, more calorie dense in terms of uh, volumetrics. Like if you look at a bowl of popcorn, there's actually very little calories in it per bowl. But, a, you know, a sweet potato, you can go through like two, 300 calories like in a, in a couple of minutes, you know, like it's not difficult to get through. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, a popcorn has more protein fiber. and more fiber per serving than a sweet potato. So please explain to wow. me how that's clean, but popcorn isn't. And then they kind of, oh, and say something <laughs> about micronutrients. 
kind of storm off. So that was my first problem with clean eating is there is no, there is no objective definition of it. I, I don't have a problem with somebody who wants to, you know, if you want to call it like minimally processed, um, you know, kind of whole food, single ingredient foods, fine. So, you know, my thing was, okay, you can eat that way, but you don't have to eat that way mm-hmm. to make progress. Now, here's one caveat to that. Do I think the general guidelines of clean eating are probably pretty good guidelines for most people, which is minimally processed, you know, low calorie density, uh, high protein, uh, you know, rel- you know, high micronutrient, uh, you know, like nutrient dense foods. Yeah, I think that's pretty good guidelines for most people. The problem becomes is when you become rigid to that, right? So that's like saying, you know, a reduced carbohydrate diet can help with fat loss. Absolutely. That's a, and people who say, well, I prefer to eat this way. That's a completely reasonable reason to do it. I've got no problem with that. But where the problem comes in is when they start trying to do fuckery with the science and say, well, insulin's the cause of why everybody's fat and sugar is addictive and this kind of stuff. And there's just no evidence for that. That, that, that just, you know, you don't, but and again, it comes down to you don't need to justify it. If you like to eat a certain way and it's sustainable and, it, and you can adhere to it, that's a completely reasonable reason to eat that way. Mm-hmm. Just don't try to like do mental gymnastics to get you know people to think that your diet is superior. Yeah, I think also, um, I guess, if you know that you are somebody that really struggles with um, you know, setting limits on um, those types of you know, highly processed foods or highly pal- palatable foods, it's probably not a good idea if you are that person to consume a lot of those or have them, you know, prevalent in your diet because then there is a greater risk, I guess, of, you know, overconsumption, excess calories leading to obesity. But for others, some people can very easily have a handful of, you know, some candy or some chocolate and then they can say, no, that's enough. So um, I think the people that kind of get into this um, mindset of, oh, you know, sugar is addictive or, you know, it's, it's the cause of obesity. Well, yes, it is a very palatable food. But generally what we tend to see is, you know, the foods that are most palatable aren't just high in sugar. Yeah, They're also really high in fats too. It's like you don't normally have one without the other. So, you know, they do they, do they both get a fair treatment? Probably not. I think generally sugar gets a bit of a bad rap. But um, not everybody has that same, I guess, response to eating those types of foods. Mm-hmm. And one other thing, I was actually reading a paper yesterday and I told Lane to read the article. <laughs> um, it's oh, about uh, sodium. So I think that's something else that um, kind of gets asked about, you know, with processed foods or frozen foods, you know, oh, isn't the sodium really high? The actual number of people that are salt sensitive is very low. It's probably about 5% of the population. So generally speaking, like the amount of sodium in your diet probably isn't as much of a bigger deal as we once thought. So um, the what I was reading though was there are um, there do seem to be some studies now that are linking high sodium foods um, with generally increased hunger or appetite. Mm. So while it's not directly the cause or potentially a cause of you know our weight gain or obesity, perhaps it is a correlation in that it helps you to or it's causing you to be more hungry. Thus, we overeat, and then that leads to the fat gain. So it's not like a direct link. Well, I think right? you know. That, that kind of, you know, again, highly processed foods, it's usually high in carbohydrate, particularly sugar, mm-hmm. high in fat, and high in sodium. And that kind of combination, I mean, think about 
the, you're, a perfect example of that is a baked potato. Mm-hmm. Okay, take a baked potato. How palatable is it without butter and without salt? <laughs> not very. It's not that palatable, right? <laughs> but you add butter and salt to it, and all yes. of a sudden it's pretty damn palatable, right? <laughs> but people think about the potato, right? Same thing with, like, it's interesting when I see people going after sugar, and they'll say, well, I, I just can't handle, you know, sugar. I'm addicted to sugar. And they're talking about eating donuts and cookies and cakes and whatnot. Those now, those foods do have, for some people, there is some evidence they have addictive like qualities, but you're not talking about sugar. Mm-hmm. In fact, for most of those foods, more there's more calories coming from fat than there is sugar. Mm-hmm. So it's just interesting how that's kind of become the, the, the bad guy in, in nutrition. And when in reality, it's kind of the confluence of several different factors that cr- makes a food kind of hyper palatable or not. So it's, it's super interesting. Like I think a lot of people um, will resort to food as a means of coping with stress or anxiety or, you know, some kind of problem that's going on in their life. And I'm definitely culprit and guilty of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've had to start kind of unlearning how I do things because it's become a, you know, it's a habit. It's something that we've done. The behavior has gone on for such a long time. Now it's a habit. But what we tend to do is like when you eat, you're still getting the exact same kind of feeling that you would for um, as a comparison, like somebody that, um, you know, uses or resorts to like drug taking, they're getting that like dopamine release, the, um, you know, that feel good feeling. So when you eat, you're getting a really similar response, particularly in relation to these, you know, highly palatable foods. So if you are stressed or you have some kind of anxiety, part of the brain, we've got the prefrontal cortex and we have the amygdala. So one of those is responsible for like our logic, our reasoning, um, you know, all the things that make sense. And then one is like the hind brain. It's our lizard brain. That's the amygdala. So if you're feeling really stressed um, and something is going on, if the first thing that your body's going to do, like the way that we're wired from an evolutionary standpoint, you are then going to switch to something or doing an action or a task that makes you feel good. So a lot of people go to those foods because they have that same feeling. Mm-hmm. So it's it's also like trying to retrain your brain to not immediately, you know, divert to those foods and find other things that you can do instead of going down this pathway of, you know, abusing food. And most same people would, you know, some people it's gambling, some people it's sex addiction, some people it's yeah. drugs, whatever. There's ways to rewire that to have positive stuff, you know, like, uh, you know, for me, I know that I can handle most stress in my life when I'm able to train hard. Yeah. You know, if I can train hard, um, I can handle most anything. And I mean, you've seen it, you yeah. know, like the worst I've ever been, like I can have like stuff going on where you're like, Oh shit, that's really stressful. But if I can go in and squat heavy, and I'm like, oh, man, I just feel like I can handle some more stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think you can rewire some of that stuff, but it's it takes again, a lot of work. Like change is hard. Yeah, it's in, it's in, it's important. People try they want to isolate you know nutrition down to one variable or you know the one thing. Or I had somebody say, you know, don't you think it's just socioeconomic that you know people who don't have money, you know, they can't buy these good foods? And I said, well, yeah, it probably contributes to it, but. You're talking about, you know, I really wish people would stop being so reductionist and let's just accept that this is a multifaceted problem that probably doesn't have a simple solution and it's going to take a multifaceted solution that is kind of comprehensive in order to, you know, help combat the obesity crisis. I think the sooner that people kind of accept that, the sooner we can, you know, understand what is actually going to help, you know, get people better. So we've covered flexible diet, we've covered clean eating, kind of touched on sugar-free, gluten-free. Can we just cover paleo? 
So uh, the paleo diet, I guess it was kind of brought to the attention by, I guess, the CrossFitters. That's yeah. certainly when I started hearing about it, probably back sure. in like, I'm going to say like 2008, maybe. I think we started. About right. but, yeah. So essentially it's just the removal of grains and dairy from, from the diet. So it's basically what you're left with is protein, um, fruits and vegetables, handful of nuts and seeds and a lot of people ended up getting really obese or overweight from this because all of a sudden they remove foods from their diet that they really once enjoyed and now they're replacing that because they're still getting hungry and my auntie is a perfect example of this she started the paleo diet and she you know texts me one day and she's like oh, i'm starting this and i'm like oh this would be interesting i wonder how that's gonna go <laughs> She put on, no, Sue wouldn't care. So I think she put on like 10 kilos over the space of six months following this paleo diet. You know, a trainer had instructed her, you know, you've got to do this all, you can't eat all these, you know, foods, nut, nut, nut. But what you can eat is a bunch of avocado. That's great for you. Use your macadamia oils. Why don't you try trail mix? Trail mix is great. So, you know, all she's done is just add in a bunch of more calories from these calorie-dense things. And really, they're not very satisfying because they're so low in protein and they're so low in um, dietary fibre. So, uh, yeah, that's my little story about paleo. But (laughs) I think that's one of those things where, you know, if you talk about the principles of what paleo recommends, I don't think it's necessarily bad advice, right? So it's high protein, lean meats, um, yeah. you know, some nuts, uh, legumes, you know, that sort of thing. But in an attempt to validate what they believe to be true, right? Again, instead of just saying, I like eating this way, it's a, it's a high satiating diet. They say, we got to eat like, you know, caveman did because that's how we evolved. Sorry, Siri, be quiet. Um, you know, and, and again, and it's kind of doing fuckery with the scientific literature. I mean, just take dairy, for example. They say don't eat dairy because cavemen didn't eat dairy. Uh, I'm not sure how they know that, but okay, they know that apparently. Um, and which actually, by the way, there is some evidence that we, we, we did domesticate cows even like, you know, 10, 20,000 years ago and we're using uh, uh, dairy, but that's another point entirely. Wow. Um, paleo is very specific, by the way, to where in the region of earth you are from, right? Mm-hmm. And we just need to look at... Uh, I'm going to tangent for a second, then draw it back. But did, did you guys watch the Game Changers? Oh, yes. I'm going to ask you about that one. <laughs> I have so, not seen it. So actually. they make they they make a big point about the burial site and that the gladiators they found there were on a plant based diet, mm-hmm. um, and they kind of use that to say, "See, this must be best for performance." Now, what they don't talk about is the one of the other study authors who mentioned that the reason he thought they had them eat a lot of grains was to fatten them up because having a layer of fat was actually beneficial for cut wounds and uh, for their competition. But what you find is that in that area, yes, that was a landlocked area. They had a higher plant-based food or plant-based intake. But if you look at areas that were close to the sea, they had high seafood intake. So what does that tell us? They weren't doing it for performance enhancing, but they were just using the fuels that were available to them that were affordable. Mm -hmm. So if we circle back, uh, why would we, why, why cut out dairy? I mean, every, I mean, again, if you have a lactose intolerance, if you have some sort of intolerance, that's, that's, that's one thing, you know, use lactose free or don't eat it. Mm-hmm. But every study we have on dairy, I mean, it's pretty, cons- there was a meta-analysis that just came out that basically showed that people who eat more dairy tend to have more lean body mass, uh, more bone mineral density, um, and seem to be a little bit healthier overall. And so, 
you know, again, and actually there was, there was, they started some trials on calcium because they found people who ate more dairy actually were lower in body fat than people who did. Um, so again, it's, it's kind of like, okay, the general principles are fine, but then when you become dogmatic about it mm-hmm. and you say, well, we have to eat like cavemen, then, then it, then it's kind of like, well, you've jumped the shark. You're, 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 you're way off base with this and you're sending the wrong message. Again, if it's just this, if you, if it's pitched as this is a method of eating that is highly satiating and it may help you uh, limit your food intake and it's nutrient dense. Cool. But when the message is, well, we can't eat these foods because our ancestors, I always tell people, I don't give a shit what our ancestors ate. Our ancestors <laughs> lived to about 40 and they weren't trying to push the limits of human performance. So just because they, you know, like it just, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It's kind of, I always say every different diet group claims that, you know, the paleolithic area grew up on their diet. Vegans will tell you that humans weren't meant to eat meat. Ketogenic people will tell you didn't we we didn't eat carbs and paleo people will tell you we didn't drink milk. So <laughs> I, I, I tell them I don't really give a shit about any of them. I just uh, I care about what does the data say right now. Yeah, I think any diet that kind of restricts whole food groups like that, you need to be a little bit um, mindful of because I think you know drawing it back to micronutrient intake and how your body will function in an optimal setting. Like once you're taking something away, you know now you're potentially risking you know micronutrient deficiencies and you're putting your body in a position where it's not going to be functioning at its best so okay next one keto keto Uh, a ketogenic diet has been around actually since the 1800s people want to make this to be like it's some new diet but it's been around for a long time and actually there is some really good evidence for the ketogenic diet being a therapeutic uh, option for people with epilepsy so epilepsy seems to be a situation where ATP, I, I think it's ATP manufacturing the brain is impaired due to some kind of glucose resistance. And I could be my, if keto experts hear this and I mess this up, feel free to correct me. But um, so by providing ketones as a alternative substrate to glucose, the brain is able to function and it's actually been shown to limit seizures. Um, deep sea divers, um, they've, the Navy has been looking at this also. That's how my, my friend uh, Dom D'Agostino, who's one of the main researchers for the ketogenic diet, um, he started out because he was uh, looking at hyperbaric oxygen therapy for deep sea divers, but actually found that people who were on a ketogenic diet got less seizures uh, at depth than people who weren't. So there are some therapeutic options for it. As far as cancer goes, uh, there's the glucose. So if there's glucose obligate tumors, the ketogenic diet might help with that. Um, there is some new evidence that suggests some tumors in particular actually prefer ketones to glucose. So it seems to be very tumor type specific, but I'm not an oncologist, not a cancer expert. Um, but there are some research going on with, you know, maybe an adjunct therapy, uh, for cancer, so there are so, there are some interesting things out there. As far as how it works is basically if you severely limit your carbohydrate intake, and we're talking you know minimum, you got to be under 100 grams a day. For most people, under 50. And also the ketogenic diet, it's not a super high protein diet, not a normal traditional ketogenic diet. People think it's a high protein, high fat diet. It's actually a moderate protein, very low carbohydrate, very high fat diet. Um, and what happens essentially is that if you are on a biochemical level, if you're not eating carbohydrate in the cell, 
you have what's called the Krebs cycle, which is where you produce um, uh, substrates for oxidative phosphorylation, which is how your body makes ATP. Um, In the Krebs cycle, if you're not eating enough carbohydrate, what's going to happen is one of those intermediates called oxaloacetate doesn't get regenerated for the Krebs cycle, and you start having an accumulation of acetyl-CoA. And acetyl-CoA can be taken and converted by the liver to uh, ketones. Mm -hmm. And so those ketones can serve as alternate fuels that the mitochondria in the cell can use for, uh, for oxidation and to produce ATP. So if you take somebody and you put them on a low carbohydrate diet or you fast them, what you'll see is they'll primarily use glucose or, you know, whatever is available fuels around for, probably about 12 to 18 hours. And then once that runs out, you'll see their blood ketone levels start to go up and they'll usually max out. I think it's like two, three millimolar is kind of what you get to to the maximum Uh, on a ketogenic diet. Most of your fuel is fatty acids and ketones. You're not using a whole lot of glucose and that's also uh, ketones and fats are glucose sparing because your muscle still tries to So people have this idea that when you're on a ketogenic diet, it completely depletes muscle glycogen. That's actually not true. Your muscle glycogen stores only fall about, they fall 40% initially, but then go back up to about 25, 30%. And that's a survival thing because think about it. You you can't use ketones for high intensity exercise. You can't use fats for high intensity exercise. So go back, you know, 10,000 years, lion starts chasing you. You haven't had access to carbohydrates you would want those ketones and fats to be able to spare the carbohydrates. So the carbohydrates you do get in or that your liver makes, because your liver can make about 120 grams of carbohydrate a day with zero uh, glucose intake. Mm -hmm. You'd want those carbohydrates you did have in in your body to be stored at least some as muscle glycogen so that if you needed it as a last ditch effort to, to get the fuck out of somewhere (laughs) you could. Right. Um, So that's kind of, the biochemical aspects of it, as far as a, you know, as a fat loss diet, some people find the ketogenic diet very satiating. Uh, ketones do seem to have an appetite inhibitory effect. Um, but in terms of calorie per calorie on weight loss, there's been several really well controlled studies. And when I mean controlled, I mean like metabolic ward. I think people don't fully appreciate what a metabolic ward study is. This is where they, house people basically in food jail. You're provided every single meal. They, everything's weighed out, measured. They know exactly what you're eating. You cannot get food anywhere. You're, they, and the reason these are only like four weeks long is because they got to pay these people a lot of money to, <laughs> to stay at this place. Wow. So heard of those. when they've done straight up trials comparing like even like extreme high carb, like over 300 grams of carbs per day, versus under, you know, like 30 grams per day, calories and protein equated, they don't see much difference in fat loss. In fact, the, the fat, low fat diet was actually a little bit better in fat loss. People that will start a ketogenic diet will actually get a uh, more aggressive weight drop in the beginning. And that's just due to the reduction in carbohydrates. Obviously when you think about carbohydrates, 
moving into the muscle cells. Um, you've also got an accompanying amount of fluid that's going to move into that interstitial space. So mm-hmm. when you take out the carbohydrate, not only are you reducing your stored muscle glycogen, you've also got removal of water. So I think people that generally what you'll see, they have to do a washout period um, in these studies yeah. to make sure that they're actually matching them tit for tat because otherwise you will see in the beginning stages of those um, you know, dietary interventions, the ketogenic group will have a greater, more accelerated weight loss in them on the front end. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. That's what they found in Kevin Hall's uh, NIH studies was they found a greater weight loss, but actually a little bit more fat loss on a low fat diet. Now, it wasn't much. It was like a few grams. It was like 20 grams extra per day. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was actually a recent study that was done by the same group, again, completely impatient, inpatient rather. Um, this time they didn't match calories. They just said, hey, we're going to give one group a ketogenic diet, another group a kind of like high carbohydrate, plant-based, high fiber diet, and you guys eat as much as you want. Mm -hmm. And let's just see how much each group eats. Now, what's interesting is both groups decreased their food intake. They both lost weight, but the plant-based, like low-fat, high-fiber diet dropped their calories by like, I think they dropped their calories by like almost 600 more spontaneously than the ketogenic diet group. So what, what that says is that, Yes, the ketogenic diet for some people helps with their appetite, but it doesn't also seem to be superior to, you know, a high fiber diet in general. So what it boils down to is what do you prefer? If you like eating that way, it can certainly work. But I think for most people, the ketogenic diet probably isn't the best tool simply because most people aren't like, can you sustain that? No. Are you going to just give up carbohydrates for the rest of your life? I mean, for most people, the answer is no. Yeah, you've got to be able to pick something that's actually sustainable. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. I was, there was um, something I was reading the other day. They were actually looking at um, the, I guess, rates of underreporting or the reduction in people's um, dietary intakes when they are being assessed. And oh, it was yeah. something like 15% reduction in calories. When people are told, you can eat whatever <laughs> you want, but they know that they're being observed. Yeah. Um, it is about a 15%. They, it was a, a systematic review um, looking at these different types of studies and they found 15% underreporting. So that's kind of <laughs> like... We've seen that with clients too. Yeah. So like, like we'll say, we don't want you to change anything. We just want to get an idea of what you're eating. Just track it for a week. And what happens is like, okay, here's what I'm eating. By the way, I lost four pounds this week. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, wait, so you just told me that you weren't able to lose weight. And all we did was have you track and boom, all of a sudden you started dropping. So it's interesting how that stuff works. I actually want to ask you about tracking. But yeah, something like when you're mentioning all of this and with all the diets, so so many of them don't seem sustainable. Is there one in particular that you find works be- like obviously flexible dieting because you've spoken about that and that's what you guys like. But is there any others that you think are more sustainable? I think it just depends on the individual and their individual psychology. I, I've really become a big fan of you know, don't bias it by what you prefer. Talk to the individual. Some people like time restricted eating. I fucking hate intermittent fasting. Like I, I've tried to do it. I hated it. Quickly. Intermittent fasting is basically where you uh, restrict your feeding window. So you, you, the, the most popular form is 16, eight. So people fast for 16 hours, they eat over an eight hour period. You've also got some people who do 22 or uh, they do uh, 18, six, and then you've got 24 and you've got 22.2 or whatever, all different sorts of ways. There's a lot of studies looking at it. And for the most part, what they show is it's basically a tool to reduce your calorie intake. They, they There doesn't seem to be a metabolic advantage. Mm-hmm. People want to talk about, well, spikes your growth hormone. It doesn't seem to make a, a growth hormone spiking in the 
physiological range makes absolutely zero difference in fat loss and muscle gain. But again, it's, it's kind of, some people prefer to eat that way. And so then they try to find the science to justify them eating that way. When in reality, they should just say, I like eating this way. My wife eats this way. She doesn't eat before noon. Oh, you she, do? She, Holly? Yeah. yeah, I can. Like, even when I'm doing powerlifting and um, doing one rep maxes, I guess <laughs> I st- I won't eat. I generally train in the morning. I like to get that done and dusted so I can go and focus on work and not have anything else to distract me. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, I for it's not something that I've always done. I kind of just gravitated towards it. I think over the years of trial um, trial and error with so many different um, nutrition strategies, just to see what works. And I think that's something we encourage our clients to do over time. You know find something or an approach that works for you. Yeah. And so just, just Sebastian, I don't know about you, but I come from that old school bodybuilding powerlifting where it's like, you should be as full as you possibly can when you go into the gym. If you're not shitting your brains out while you're squatting, something's wrong and you should be bloated. You should be bloated as hell. That produces a good training session. You know, that's, but you know, I tell people, I'm like, that's the way I like to do it. I like to feel fueled up, but I don't have any evidence that it's better. I just know I like doing it that way. I I think you're right with that, Lane. Um, Everything that I hear about with all of these different types of diets really refer to fat loss. And that's that's kind of like really outside of what I do. Everything that I'm about is calorie surplus and eating more food and and fueling your body for performance. So I absolutely respect that there's a huge audience for fat loss. And that's what a lot of these different diet plans are relating to is is fat loss. What about the flip side of that? Our next style of diet that I wanted to ask you about is a FODMAP diet. And the reason why I'm bringing up FODMAP diet is I relate that to a vertical diet. Uh, I'm sure you've heard all about that. And that's something that I loosely follow. That's, you know, working with Hafthor, that's that's his, he works with Stan and he follows a vertical diet. And I find when I'm eating with him, I'm able to eat a lot of food. I've, I've sat with him and I've, I've counted an 8,000 8, calorie day with him. Um, and, and I was able to actually do that and, and do it quite comfortably. Up until the end of the day, I had a glass of milk and then all of a sudden, uh, everything went pear-shaped. He almost, I, like, I almost to exploded. die. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, are you, what are your thoughts on FOD? Or, milk. Well, what, the what, milk. Yeah, it was the milk. That was the only thing that my, my guts just He literally couldn't finish this much left of the milk. It was hilarious. And it was, it's on YouTube for anyone that wants to check it out. So but um, what, what, are you, what, what do you think of, of vertical diet? When people ask me about vertical diet, I say I know from a calorie uh, surplus standpoint or, or a muscle building standpoint, I think it works really, really well for me. Obviously, Half Thor's 450 pounds and it's not an easy yeah. task. So it's like it really works for us. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts on, on vertical diet? Yeah, so it's interesting. I have people, you know, tag me and Stan stuff, and they're like, "Oh, destroy this!" And I'm like, "I'm not going to destroy it." Like Stan, Stan doesn't make claims about it for like being superior for fat loss or anything. You know, that's and that's the thing. People get so dogmatic about diets as they see Stan talking about it, and they think he's saying, "Oh, this is the best diet for everybody." You know, and he's not making those claims in the population he's working with, which is uh, you know the strong men, guys with a lot of muscle mass, and I, I've. I try to explain this to people. I'm like, I remember seeing Ben Pakulski and Brian Shaw standing next to each other. And I was like, oh my God, Ben looks like he could fit this pocket, you know? <laughs> and Ben's two, like 290 pounds, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, and I'm just like, he looks tiny next to him. I, and I don't want to get anywhere near there. because I'm just going to look like a twig. Um, so yeah, the amount of food these guys have to eat to maintain that, I mean, I know Ray Williams, for example, USAPL champion, IPF champion, raised about 400 pounds 
And Ray says, you know, if he has a couple of days where he's just kind of not like really trying to force food down, he'll lose 10, 20 pounds, you know? Um, And so for those guys, it's not about trying to be satiated. It's about how can we minimize gastrointestinal discomfort Mm -hmm. for these guys? Because a lot of these guys are going to feel so bloated and lethargic all the time from all the food they're eating. How can we get them to eat a bunch of calories without feeling so bad? And now I'm going to let our FODMAP expert take this away. (laughs) Yeah. So I guess um, with my background in um, dietetics and a dietitian, so gastroenterology is a really big, you know, window of what we're learning about. So, Um, I guess the FODMAP diet or the elimination diet, um, the vertical diet, whatever you want to call it, um, essentially it's it's an acronym. It stands for fructooligosaccharides and polyols. So these are certain molecules that are in food that are known to kind of be irritants for some people, but typically people with a more sensitive GI. So there's a huge list of foods that kind of fall within this category. Uh, And, you know, for some foods within one of those um, unique groups, it might be that a 50 gram serving of that food is a low FODMAP. Go for it. Go to town. You can have that amount and it's not going to do anything. Um, but if you have a 100 gram serve of that food, it's now a high FODMAP. So it is really um, individual to how people will respond to each of these foods. And some people will be sensitive to one and not another. So I guess the first thing um, for most people, if they are somebody that feels like they've got a little bit of a, a gastrointestinal, you know, discomfort, whether it's bloating, wind, pain, um, you know, wind. visible, uh, like farting all the time, whatever. <laughs> I um, remember the first time she called it wind. I was like, Oh, <laughs> get real clinical um, you know diarrhea constipation like all of that falls in with, within the ibs category irritable bowel syndrome so um i guess the first thing that you can do is actually have a test that can help you determine which of these fodmaps okay, why does why do fodmaps cause pain cause some of these symptoms? Oh, okay so why do they yep so essentially um, a lot of these um foods uh, end up traveling through the gi tract largely undigested so once they reach the large colon, uh, what happens is the natural gut microflora or the microbiome that exists there, um, they tend to use that food as like their energy source. So due to the process of fermentation through the microbiome, they end up producing um, compounds called short-chain fatty acids and they also produce hydrogen um, and that is like the gas. So you might notice if you have a really high fiber diet, just generally you may end up being a little bit more gassy on that day because a greater percentage of the food volume that you've consumed is going to make it to your colon and it's going to get fermented. So, um, you know, something else I guess that people don't think about and it's probably a story for another day, but is, you know, if you have a high fiber diet or you start to introduce more uh, high fiber foods, through a diet phase, you can actually end up retaining more um, of the calories from those just through the fact that the um, the gut microbiome will end up developing to cater to the foods that it's being provided with. So then over time, you end up getting a greater reabsorption of those short chain fatty acids back across the intestinal lumen. You get more energy back. So that's something that we kind of talk about, I guess, you know, if, if your weight loss um, stalls or plateaus, but 
Back to FODMAP. <laughs> I was going to bring it back. So hydrogen breath testing is um, something that you can do to actually assess or determine, um, you know, if you have an intolerance to any of those um, acronyms. Um, essentially, you have to make sure that you're eating a lot of those foods. You go in, they give you a, um, a, a beverage or a solution that contains a really high amount. Um, for example, it would be like the equivalent of if you were testing for lactose, uh, intolerance you'd be having like what's equivalent in a small solution of a liter of milk Um, so you know based on the amount of hydrogen gas that you produce and they collect um, can kind of then give you a diagnosis of whether you're sensitive to that um, to that food so it's a really quick and easy way to get a pretty quick diagnosis then you simply eliminate that particular food or that group of foods um, completely. And then over time, you slowly uh, reintroduce some of those to determine what your threshold is. Because again, a small amount might be totally fine. You can get away with having 50 grams of Brussels sprouts or, you know, 50 grams of cauliflower. But if you have a hundred, then, you know, you're stinking out the entire bedroom. (laughs) Forget about it. So, yeah. Do they have to test those individually or can they do the test like test you can you go to your dietitian so a local dietitian that specializes in gastro um, and food intolerance should be able to organize that test and you can go in and have the plethora of tests done so you do them over a series of days you couldn't do them all in the one day yeah um but yeah you test for those individually right bringing that back for you, Sebastian, to kind of the strongman stuff. Mm-hmm. So, for example, right now I'm uh, planning. I, I was at the, I was a 93 kilo um, lifter. I went up to the 105 kilo class last year, just as I was re-back, rehabbing my back injury. I didn't want to worry about being restricted uh, to get to 105 for me by the end. So when I'm here at 93, I don't have any GI discomfort. Like I can eat all kinds of different FODMAPs, and it doesn't bother me. But I found that when I got to, to 4,000 calories a day all of a sudden I get to the end of the day and I would just not feel like eating. So I think a lot of people probably have these sensitivities, but either their calories are low enough or they don't eat enough of these foods to really have problems. But when you start to get to guys who are eating, you know, six, seven, 8,000 calories a day, even if per, even if on a per calorie level, your diet's pretty low in FODMAPs, you can accumulate quite a bit throughout the course of the day. And so I think, you know, again, um, some of the some of the guys have said, "Well, I feel so much better." Some of them actually initially lose weight because they're not so bloated all the time. Mm. Um, and people mistake that for, "Oh, I lost fat, I got leaner," that sort of thing. But in reality, doing these elimination style diets is just freeing their diet from gut irritants, and it's making them feel a lot better, and they're able to f- perform a little bit better. So I think that's again, that's why it's all tools in a tool belt. You know, if somebody is trying to get as lean as possible, you know the feeling of being bloated is actually good for getting lean because it stops you from eating. (laughs) But if you're trying to pack away 8,000 calories, it's a pretty terrible thing to have because now it's limiting you from being able to get that many calories in. So you can deadlift an absurd 501 kilos. (laughs) (laughs) On that, um, just the the idea of feeling bloated, I've always associated that with a a really not a nice thing. Is this something that you're kind of aiming towards when you're, when you're, um, putting someone on a fat loss, towards a fat loss goal, is that an okay thing to, to feel bloated? Yeah, so I, it, I think it depends on the individual. Um, some people, like, they get that feeling of bloated, especially females, and it discourages them and they get, you know, but but some people, like um, uh, our friend Pauline Nordine, 
um, she's a trainer out in LA and she like prides herself on the veggie bloat. She talks about eating, you know, like two pounds of broccoli at a meal and just, she's like, Hey, I promise you, she's like, if you eat two pounds of broccoli, you don't want to eat anymore. She's like, so go do that. (laughs) So I mean, no, it's, I, I wouldn't like it, but I remember when I was getting ready for show, um, just, you know, when my calories got down to around 2,100, 2000, you know, for me, that's a pretty low amount of calories. And, um, I was eating a lot of mushrooms actually. So mushrooms are very satiating. Um, and I would eat like literally a pound of mushrooms with some meat as well. And like, I would be so bloated after that, but it would make me feel full. And so I wouldn't eat any more calories. So it was good from a satiety standpoint. So I I think it can be a useful tool. The other thing is you hear a lot of is people go, well, I feel bloated all the time. My, my GI isn't healthy. Actually, your GI is probably really healthy. The fact that you are bloated, because that means your gut bacteria are just having a party down there because you're giving them all kinds of fuel. Okay, that's so people kind of mistake this, you know, discomfort for I'm not healthy. Now there can be times when you're not healthy uh, and you are bloated. That's true. But just because you're bloated doesn't mean your GI is unhealthy. And I've, I've had to explain that to a lot of clients, but sure. It, you're eating a lot of dietary. Yeah, sure. It, it can be a fuel. And that, I mean, again, going back to kind of elimination diet or even like the carnivore diet, which is very popular now. A lot of people have started the carnivore diet. They say, well, I lost weight. Well, well, you're eating meat, which is hard to overeat on. And secondly, you're not eating any fiber. So if you, have, if you are somebody who has a high degree of gut irritation, you've essentially just done an elimination diet and you've cut the gut irritants out and all of a sudden you feel better. It's not that, you know, meat heals or that, you know, meat is magic. And you just cut these gut irritants out and you feel better. So again, it's, that's why we say everything's tools in a tool belt. Because as you can see, depending on one person, like a hat for, right, you wouldn't want to give him the same style of programming or, or even, uh, and I'm sure like even with training, right, you're not going to program for him the same way you program for a, a 66 kilo IPF lifter, right? Like those smaller guys can handle a lot more volume. You take somebody who's that big who can deadlift 500 kilos and you try having them deadlift super heavy, you know, three, two, three times a week, it beats the crap out of them because they're just overall more tonnage. So it's the same thing with nutrition. It has to be programmed, has to be targeted, has to depend on the individual, their preferences, and also what they can adhere to and their goals. And that's why, again, we don't get dogmatic about any one thing because we've seen every which way work. Yeah, of course. So when, while we're on the topic of athletes and, and eating for performance and, you know, looking at the big guys like this who, like, I, I feed this guy so I know that I'm cooking quite a few <laughs> meals and quite a few meat meals per day. Just talking about protein consumption and high protein consumption, I guess that will lead us on to the next diet, which would be the carnivore diet. But, um, you know, is it healthy? What's too much protein? When should we be eating protein? Um, pre-workout, post-workout. Let's talk about that a little bit. My concern with the carnivore diet isn't so much the protein intake. Um, You know, protein intake of even up to 4.4 grams per kilogram of lean body mass has been studied. Uh, Dr. Jose Antonio did a study where I think he looked at people for a year who were consuming habitually 4.4 grams per kilo of, of lean body mass. That's a very high protein intake. And they didn't seem to see any negative health outcomes. So I I'm not really concerned about it from that aspect. My concern would be more what you're eliminating from your diet. So the fact that you, you know, you're only eating meat, well, right away, no fiber, okay. right? And I, I had this, I actually had a debate with uh, two carnivore people, uh, Paul Saladino, as well as Sean Baker. You know, the, their, their point was, well, you don't really need fiber. You know, if, you, if I don't eat fiber, nothing bad happens. Well, 
if you look at the, the systematic reviews and meta-analyses, like, no, if you stop eating fiber, is it going to kill you tomorrow or next week or next month or next year? No. If you look consistently, and this is, I mean, it's not, we're not talking about one study and a meta-analyses or systematic review is kind of looking at a, a combination of studies that all have similar variables and outcomes. Um, we're not even talking about just one systematic review or a couple. We're talking about dozens have come to the same conclusion, which is more fiber is an independent risk reductive agent for cardiovascular disease and for cancer, specifically colon cancer. I think it's like a 7% decrease for every quintile of fiber intake goes up. Do we have a prescription so, for the amount of fiber we should be having a day? Just like a general So, So a popular one I see thrown around that I'm not – it's hard to say because actually my, my advisor, Don Lehman, we talked about this because he was like, you know, he's like, once you get to a certain amount of fiber, you probably don't need much more because you've satisfied your gut microbiota. You've got enough for digestion. You know, um, I've heard the thrown around 50, 15 grams, 15 grams per thousand calorie intake. I think that's fine. I think once you get up to those guys like Hapthor that are on 8,000 calories, you probably ought to start paring that down because you don't need to be taking in 120 grams of fiber a day. Um, I would say probably 15 grams per thousand calories with the caveat that the upper limit should be probably around 80 grams. I wouldn't be going much higher than 80 grams per day. Yeah, I think, well, the recommendations based on the current um, US Dietetics Association is 25 grams for females and 35, or sorry, 38 grams for adult males. But Mm -hmm. again, I think my advice to clients is, you know, eat an amount of fiber or the most amount of fiber that you can tolerate. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not going to be harmful for you. And if you enjoy it um, and it's really satisfying, that is great. Okay. <laughs> so. And what is your prescription for protein intake? One- uh, as far as protein goes, I, I think, you know, the, the meta analyses for building muscle, pretty clear. If you're between uh, 1.6 to 2.4 grams per kilo, and let's just a uh, uh, kilo of lean lean body mass. Uh, no, no, no. They're actually uh, they're actually total body weight. It was total body weight in that study. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would just say there's no downside to 2.4 grams per kilo. Eat 2.4 grams per kilo Men, women, as a no minimum. If you, uh, no difference for women. No. So um, it seems to be just based on lean body mass. Mm-hmm. Um, again, most people, if you're having around two grams per kilo, you're going to be fine. If you want to make sure, 2.4 grams per, per kilo. And then um, there was a study, uh, a systematic review by Eric Helms and a few other people, and they showed that for people who are in a caloric deficit, that number may move up a little bit, that up to three grams per kilogram of lean body mass might be beneficial for maintaining lean body mass while in a calorie deficit. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, that's that's kind of where we put it. But again, if you want to eat more protein, there's there's nothing wrong with that. But again, when we get into really really high levels of protein intake, um, people, you know, it can be quite satiating. From so a performance perspective, though, if you do, I, I've seen a lot of people, um, you know, said, "Oh, my protein intakes are X," and they're, you know, <laughs> someone that's half the size of me eating more protein than Lane, <laughs> um, and you know, then you put their um, their carbohydrate and their fat intakes, and they're ridiculously low, like kind of got to also weigh out about the benefits for training as well yeah. so if you're trying to if your if your goals are in strength or building muscle and you are overdoing protein at the expense of carbs 
like that probably is going to have some kind of a detrimental effect to your performance in the gym. So Mm -hmm. is it worth then bringing that down to allow a little bit more room um, with carbohydrates to better, you know, fuel your performance? to get your strength gains, to get your hypertrophy, then probably yes. Yeah, and then the one more thing, I was two more points I would make, you know, because um, I, 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 one of the big myths I feel out there is that uh, people on performance-enhancing drugs need just so much more protein. I've seen this be pervasive in the bodybuilding community. They say, well, well, that's fine for you little tiny natty guys, but <laughs> us guys on the sauce, we need, you know, five grams per kilo of, of protein. Um, so the research shows that kind of regardless of that, what you need to maximize protein synthesis seems to be still the same. And if you're worried about protein as a substrate for building muscle, which I think a lot of, of guys who take performance enhancing drugs, the, one of the things they worry about is, okay, well, if I'm building so much more muscle than somebody who's natural, um, I'm just going to need more protein to build that muscle. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I can do math, so I can break down exactly how much that is. So if you look at like, let's say 25 kilos of lean body mass in a year, and that's, I think most of us would consider that a very, very high amount of lean body mass, even for somebody who's new to performance enhancing drugs and takes a crap load of them. That breaks down to on a per day basis in terms of dry weight of tissue, about 20 to 25 grams. So if you're worried about it, eat your 2.4 grams of protein per kilo of body mass, add 30 grams on top of it and you're covered. But again, if you like, if somebody likes more protein, there's no downside to it. But for some of these guys who are so massive and have to eat such a high food volume, protein is very satiating. It might be actually better for them to pare back some of the, and I've done this with guys who I worked with. I worked with some IFBB pros who actually brought their protein intake down and they couldn't believe how much better they felt. Yeah, I think something that does tend to happen, though, is on the higher calorie end of the spectrum, um, just through, um, I guess, trace amounts of protein from other foods that might not necessarily be high in protein, just through um, sheer volume, you've then naturally just got a a higher amount of protein coming in, um, and that can kind of push the end of that that range that we recommend. So you're probably going to have somebody. Yeah, if you're eating 8,000 calories a day, you're probably getting 100 grams of protein in just just from, like, your other sources, you know? So yeah, it's, um, it's interesting, but again, it's, you know, and this is me as a protein guy saying this, I love protein. The, the one other caveat I'll say is that per day is a little bit of a misleading number because the human body has no viable storage mechanism for protein. And one of the experiments we did in my grad, in my PhD thesis was we actually looked at, okay, we're going to equate daily protein, but for one group, we're going to give almost all of it at night like for dinner, which is actually a way a lot of people eat. They don't eat much protein, breakfast and lunch, and they eat a lot of dinner. So we gave 70% at dinner, 15% at breakfast, 15% at lunch. And then the other group, we kind of evenly distributed. Um, Now this was in rats. So I did that because I could use a high subject number and I could control it. Like I weighed out every single meal for 110 rats every day for 11 weeks, three meals a day. Nightmare. (laughs) But at the end of it, the the subjects that we gave the more evenly distributed protein intake to across the day had a little bit bigger muscles, about eight to 10% difference in muscle weight. So that's actually been recently kind of replicated in humans and they saw, you know, similar findings, not a, not a bunch more muscle, but some more muscle. And it makes sense because humans don't have, the body doesn't have a viable storage mechanism for protein, right? Like you can't, 
somebody said, well, muscle's a, a storage. No, it's not, it's not a storage unit. Um, so you kind of either have to use those amino acids for anabolism or the body oxidizes them and uses them for energy. And after a few hours, you're kind of through it. So 2.4, you know, what I recommend is 2.4 grams per kilogram of lean body mass, more if you want. Um, but make sure that you're also distributing that over, you know, three to five meals per day uh, from high quality protein sources. And I think yeah. that's kind of the general recommendation that I would give. So th this is the only merit to meal timing is, is protein distribution. Um, you just said three to five meals for someone who is on a calorie surplus. So, so let's talk about me and my audience now, people that are looking to gain <laughs> as much mu muscle as possible. What, it, what would you say is yeah. the most uh, ideal amount of times per day that they should be spreading their, their protein intake? Yeah, if you, if you put a gun to my head, I would say that four or five meals is probably better than three yeah. um but i don't have any scientific data to back that up oh we'll be getting into the weeds with that. <laughs> <laughs> when i first got to grad school and this was very normal for you know the the early 2000s time period the idea was eat eight meals a day every two hours because that way you're going to have a constant stream of amino acids coming in right and i'll try to keep this brief but one of the coolest things about my graduate school was it actually changed the way i ate um, so I, well, the first experiment we did, we fed, we were going to look at, okay, if we feed a meal that maxes out the protein synthetic response, how long does that last? Cause nobody had ever done that. And what kind of predicts how long it lasts? So what I figured would happen was that, okay, leucine, the amino acid leucine seems to be the trigger for muscle protein synthesis. I figured, okay, well, however long leucine is elevated in the blood will be how long we see protein synthesis elevated. So I got the data back. And this very this this is one of the things that absolutely destroyed my biases and made me question everything from then on. Um, leucine was still elevated at five hours post meal ingestion, but protein synthesis had come back to baseline by three hours. Wow. And I kept rerunning the data and rerunning the data and rerunning it. And finally, my advisor, who's one of the most brilliant men I've ever met, Dr. Lehman, Dr. Don Lehman, he called me into his office and he was like, "So where are we with this duration study?" And I said, well, I just got to run the data one more time because it's wrong. <laughs> and he's like, why is it wrong? And we went through why I thought it was wrong. And he said, it sounds like your data is just fine. It sounds like, it sounds like you're trying to torture your data to fit your hypothesis. And what you need to do is change your hypothesis to fit the data. And that was like a <laughs> moment for me. So I started going back to the literature and I actually found a study where they infused uh, essential amino acids for six hours in humans. And what they saw was that Protein synthesis went up, came back down at about two hours, and then never came back up again, even though they kept infusing essential amino acids the entire time. So that made me think, holy shit, maybe us bodybuilders have been doing this thing wrong the whole time. So I think what that says is that you probably need a period of time to, for lack of a better term, let the system reset. I think that eating too frequently is probably a downside in terms of protein synthesis. I think eating too infrequently is probably a downside. If I had to pick a sweet spot, I think four to five meals is probably the sweet spot, four to five dosings. If you really want to twist my arm and you say, what about just squeezing the, you know, squeezing the last little bit out? Um, you know, if you're somebody who wakes up in the middle of the night anyway, which I am, um, you could always just down a protein shake real quick. You know, because I always have to wake up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom. You could just down something real quick and go back to bed. Maybe you're getting a little bit more then because that's an eight-hour period where you normally wouldn't feed. Uh, but I would never tell somebody, 
disrupt your sleep, wake up, and have a protein shake. But that might be one way you to get that. a six. He doesn't do that. Sebastian, you just mentioned, you know, is protein really the only macronutrient that we need to be concerned with as far as meal timing and distribution? Yep. Yep. Um, I actually just put a, um, an infographic together very recently on, um, you know, meal distribution, meal timing. And they were, um, this particular study was looking at two, um, I guess, two meal occasions, which were calorie equated, uh, macro equated. And essentially, if they were fed, so the group that were fed at the meal in the morning actually got a, a significantly greater thermic effect of food um, than when they ate the same meal, same calories, calories equated at the PM occasion. And it was a significant or a meaningful amount of calories. Um, so that is a very that was a twenty twenty publication. Um, it kind of goes against some of the studies that had previously been published, I guess, on you know meal distribution, thermic effect of food. Um, so basically, to kind of summarize what they what they found was. If you are able to eat a greater percentage of your calories in the morning, you may have a better um, energy burn from the, the metabolism and breakdown of food um, compared to if you ate the same amount of food later in the day. Now, that's all well, well and good, but for somebody like me who hates eating all their food in the morning, if I, I could try that, right? Let's say I did, and then I'm going to get to the end of the day and I'm going to go... Damn, I'm really hungry. I'm with you. My Holly. calories are up, uh, and I'm probably just going to have another snack, and that therefore takes me out of compliance to my targets, and then I'm going to gain weight. Well, is that an effective strategy? Even though the science says perhaps it might be a little bit better if you eat more food in the morning. So again, you've got to really take it back to an individual, um, you know, basis. Like what suits you. <laughs> Yeah, and I think one thing, one thing I'd add to that is a lot of people kind of chase that perfection with physiological stuff when in reality, compliance is the science, yep. right? Like, especially with fat loss, you've got to start your absolute rock foundation has to be, can I get somebody to be compliant to this? Because the best diet in the world means absolutely nothing if you can't stick to it. Mm. And so... What that, that also means for your strong men, Sebastian, is you need to have them eating all at night and nothing in the morning, right? <laughs> so the, the thing so, is, as well, with the strong men, it's like the, the meal timing, um, I don't think they even think twice about that. It's more about getting the actual calories in. Yeah. And they just find it easier to, to stomach that many bouts, like smaller bouts. Well, I, I think also, Sebastian, a point to hit on is, it's, I don't think that meal timing maybe necessarily doesn't matter at all. Um, I think it might be so small that it's hard to pick it out because human trials are extremely messy. It's hard to get high subject numbers. It's hard to get compliance. It might just, you know, if we're talking about a 5% difference, it might just be too messy to pick it out. Mm -hmm. Right. So that might be something we don't, we, we just don't ever see, even though it may be an actual difference. I think that, I think that nutrient timing, if it matters, probably matters the most for people who are on low calories, yeah. right? So people who wear their glycogen, because if you're a strong man eating 8,000 calories a day, your glycogen is topped off literally all, all the day. time. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It doesn't matter if you went three hours without eating. It's not like that. Stop. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> that, that, that 2,000 calorie lunch didn't just all the way run through you. You know what I mean? <laughs> But if you're talking about somebody who's on 1500 calories and they're down to the last lowest bits of body fat getting ready for a show, then maybe they need to have a higher carbohydrate meal before their yeah. training session because maybe that's the only time they're going to have a reasonable amount of glycogen to go train. So I, I think, again, it, it kind of depends on the individual. And I think, again, that's why we don't we try not to get dogmatic about what we say because 
the other the one other thing I'll say about the study she cited is now I've gotten so skeptical that if something comes out in one study, I go, "That's great, wake me up when there's about ten, and then I'll <laughs> then I'll get excited." Oh, I would love to hear your conversations. All right, I think we've covered most of them. Just quickly, just touching back on um, gluten free and dairy free. So unless you've got intolerances. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I honestly, I have had that many people say, oh, you know, I, I think I need to be gluten free. Um, I, I just do better. Um, gluten is uh, one of the FODMAPs. So for some people, um, perhaps, um, you know, moving to a gluten free diet uh, may be better for them from the, um, you know, better GI symptoms or sorry, they become uh, symptom free. But um, the blanket recommendation is no, it is not healthier. In fact, if you are like as someone that thought and was you know, gluten. Um, I, I was diagnosed with uh, celiac many years ago, um, and it turns out I don't actually carry the gene. So it was a misdiagnosis, and some of the testing was in, inaccurate. But as someone who had followed a gluten free diet for several years, it is not easy. It's expensive. It's just annoying at every single point of the day going out for, you know, restaurants. I, I'm, I swear I've had that much saliva from other people in my food. It's not funny. And it's not healthier. So, you know, you're again, if the, anything that blanket rules out food groups is not necessarily better because you're minimizing the amount of, you know, micronutrients from other foods. And same thing goes for lactose. So it is not healthier to be. Uh, lactose free it just means it's a pain in the ass for nearly every single recipe Um, unless you are somebody that has a lactase deficiency you do not carry the enzyme that breaks down lactose it is absolutely unnecessary unless you just want to be cool so okay and i'll I'll leave you guys with one story um i had one gal come to me not diana (laughs) um And they swore. They Are you sure? Come on. They, they they swore up and down that they were um, gluten intolerant, and I kind of you know went down the road of all right. Let's sometimes I just let it go, and sometimes I go all right. Let's press on this a little bit, and I kind of like went down the road of all right. When are you having gluten? And it it turns out really the only time she was having gluten was when she was binge eating, right? So she would try to restrict it, and then she would have something in it, kind of go fuck it since I'm already going to feel like crap and eat a bunch of it. And I said, what are you, are you sure it's gluten and not just the 2000 calories that you pounded down? And I said, I I tell you what, I want you to eat two slices of bread tonight and then let me know how you feel. And the next morning I had an email. I said, Oh my God, I'm not gluten intolerant. Imagine that. So I think a lot of times, you know, this is mistaking correlation for causation, right? Like I eat bread or I eat gluten and I feel bad. Okay. But your diet isn't just gluten. You also eat a bunch of other stuff, right? Yeah, so. I think, and a lot of people will misdiagnose if they've got some GI discomfort. It's, it's common. I think a lot of people are familiar with that now. So they'll just jump to the conclusion that, oh, I must be, you know, gluten intolerant or I, I shouldn't be. Um, maybe I've got celiac. There's a very simple, a simple test for that. Go and get it. <laughs> you can actually just have a gastroscopy. Uh, maybe get up some bloods done and you can find out pretty quick whether you are or not. Um, but I think something that kind of ends up being the actual case and the reason for those GI problems is that they are um, somebody that has IBS and the number of foods um, that contain, for example, um, like garlic and onion, they are the two biggest triggers for 95% of people with IBS. (laughs) Um, They'll say, oh, you know, I felt really bad at this meal and it was a bowl of pasta and they've had like a spaghetti pasta. And then they've also had, um, I don't know, on their salad at lunchtime, they had something and it was like, oh, there was bread croutons in it. 
Um, and then I also had it with, you know, a side of bread. So it must be that it's the bread. And then I said, well, actually, you know, let's go and get some tests done. It turns out it was just that the pasta sauce, which is smothered in garlic and onion, that they're putting on their pasta, and it was the garlic bread that came with their salad that was actually the cause and not actually the bread. So I think yeah. um, people try to draw, you know, a connection to something, um, but it could be so many things. Yeah, don't self-diagnose and don't of go course. to Google either. You know it's going to take a long time, but it's something that I really, <laughs> I, 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 I really want to speak about it with you guys, and that's definitely the, the vegan carnivore diet and, and also the documentary Game Changers. It's something that's brought up so many times from people that are you know, seemingly intelligent people that are out of our industry, they come to us and they say, you know, you should do the vegan thing. Like I saw this world record holding strongman and it's like, I, I, I know that guy <laughs> re really well and, and he's not a vegan, just trust me. Um, so that doesn't sit... It, you yeah, know, all I, those whey protein shakes. You know, it, it just doesn't sit well with me when I when I hear these things and I just, I really wanted to... I know that you've uh, done a whole podcast on, on debunking the game changers and I want it on my podcast which we, we definitely don't have the time for today. Well, let's do another one. I, yeah, I would, I would sure, really love sure. that. Um, in the meantime, where is it that our audience can find you guys? Yeah, so just just to so we don't get left on a teaser, if you guys want to see more about the Game Changers, we do have a 40-minute YouTube video where we break it down, uh, the claims in the Game Changers and why some of them were insane. Um, is as that well on as, you, uh, your YouTube channel, right? Uh, my, my YouTube channel, as well as, uh, I think it's on yours too, as well as biolane.com. If you search biolane game changers, my article will come up. It's a 10,000 word article breaking down all the claims. Okay, um, and then as far as where you can find us, uh, biolane.com, I'm biolane on all social media. And then we have just recently released our nutrition coaching app, Carbon so Diet Coach, so available exciting. on iOS and, I just downloaded iOS it. and Android. Which conveniently yeah. gives you the option to choose any diet that you like. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to tell us quickly a little bit about the app? Yeah, so this is something that's been in the works for a long time. And basically what we, when we, made it. And it was myself, Holly, our friend, Keith Crocker, who's also a uh, registered dietitian himself. And then uh, two, uh, two friends of ours who did the development of the app. Um, so basically we set out to say, all right, we're going to build this system so that it coaches like we would coach. Mm -hmm. If we, we, we have tried to break it. We, and we did break it for a long time because that's what you do when you test apps. Uh, and if it gave us, uh, you know, uh, an adjustment or something that didn't make sense or something we wouldn't do as coaches, we went back to the drawing board is basically the way we, we did it. So there's never going to be anything that replaces, you know, one-on-one -on -one coaching because there, you can never match the, um, the amount of support that you're going to get from an actual person, which is why we also offer coaching through Team BioLane. But not everybody can afford hundreds of dollars a month for a nutrition coach. So we wanted to come up with something that anybody could afford. So our app is $10 US per month. Mm -hmm. um, you can actually, it's actually cheaper than that if you pay for six months or a year up front. And it has, I mean, it's everything. You can do fat loss, muscle gain, reverse dieting, uh, maintenance, and it functions incredibly well. I used it to coach me uh, to drop from the 105 class, the 93 kilo class. I basically maintained all my strength. Actually, I've gained on my bench press. So it's a it's a coaching app. So basically, okay. when you go to the app and you download it and you pick a plan, um, it will ask you several different metrics like what's your weight, what's your body fat, you know. And if you don't know, if you don't know your body fat, don't worry. We have ways to calculate it. Uh, what are your activity? What's your lifestyle like? What's your activity level? 
I think it's eight questions in the sign up flow mm-hmm. and then what, what goal you want. You and then it's, you get to uh, select like your rate of loss or rate of gain. So there's a sliding scale. Like if you're doing fat loss and you know how much you'd like to, you just slide it to, Oh yeah, I'd like to lose, you know, a half a kilo per week during this fat loss. So you are in full control of all the metrics. Um, you check in with it weekly. Like you would a coach, you, you know, mark your compliance. Is it for females that you come into your menstrual cycle? Yes or no. The coach will then, you know, assess your weigh-ins and generate your nutrition requirements, give you some props if you did well. It kind of gives you some feedback and it makes an adjustment based on the algorithm that we wrote. So amazing! it's exactly what we would do. You start, let's say you pick fat loss and we may have made it so customizable that like, for example, for most people, we recommend a balanced intake. Um, but even within that, we've allowed you to adjust the protein, the carbs and the fats, a certain amount. So you can adjust it or you can do, we have a reduced carb option. We have a ketogenic option. We have a plant-based option. Okay. We have a low fat option. So we have all these different options. So no matter how you like to eat, you can use this app. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, when you start, let's say you're, you're losing fat and you lose uh, a little, you lose more weight than you're supposed to because, you know, maybe it calculated your calories a little bit too low. It will automatically adjust you up to compensate, but we've also built it with sanity checks so that it doesn't just, you know, blast you up 800 calories because you lost too much one week. It's, it's very constrained, calculated, just like a coach would be. And, uh, our feedback so far has been incredible. Um, I think we're, that's awesome. I think we're 4.7 stars on Apple right now on iOS and we have over a hundred reviews. So it's only, it's been out less than a month and we're approaching 10,000 subscribers. So How good. We're, we're, yeah, we're really excited about it. We think we it's going to be a huge game changer so for people. A, it's available um, worldwide as the coaching function and the food databases are available in USA, Australia. Ooh. That's why, yeah. You <laughs> yes. Uh, right. Canada. She's like, I'm quitting this company I'm if like, we don't have Australia. I'm <laughs> not doing it on launch and I'm like, I'm quitting. If you don't <laughs> Australia, so Australia and then the UK. So those four countries. And um, Canada. Even if, let's say you're in, you know, Germany, even if the database isn't specific to your country, it'll still find generic foods like rice, milk, you know, um, all that kind of stuff, whatever. Um, and you can also create custom foods. So if there's something specific to your country that we don't have, you can put it in yourself and then it's in there for good. There's a lot of customization options. We have a calorie cycling option. Like if you want more calories on certain days, if you adjust, say your Saturday up, it'll automatically recalculate the rest of your week so that your weekly budget is still the same. I mean, we really, we tried to think of everything. So we're really excited about it. Well, um, you guys are seriously like my mind has been blown. I think I'm going to have to listen to this podcast myself about a thousand times just to process all of the information that you've just provided for us and our audience. That is amazing. Holly, can you just share with us your um, Instagram tag as well? Yeah, so I'm Holly T. Baxter. Uh, I think it's the same on YouTube. We're going to put them all here for you guys as well. Yeah. That was amazing. She doesn't know her Facebook. (laughs) We're not really good with Facebook either. Thank you so much, guys. We literally probably had another 10 questions that we wanted to ask you. So please, will you come back and do another episode with us? We really wanted to talk about like um, the difference between um, your nutritional approach for men and women because that's what our business is about. Training and dieting around the menstrual cycle. Yeah. Definitely. Game game changers is my one that I want to speak about. So (laughs) if you'd you'd (laughs) like to come back on, we'll have you anytime. So we'll talk about that. But thank you so much for joining us we've Thanks, loved guys. this episode and I'm sure our audience is going oh, yeah. to as well see you guys, see you. Bye. Take care, guys.